The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. Our sponsors today are Caden Resources, Canamax Resources, and Gold Gold Resources. The title of today's show is The Destruction of Money as We Know It. Today, we are having an exciting but also very disturbing show. It's exciting because coming up at about half past the hour, James Rickards will be with us to talk about how you can not only protect yourself but even enhance your wealth if you realize that the U.S. dollar and the existing global dollar-backed monetary system is nearing its end. But our show today is also very disturbing in some ways because of the contents of an interview I will be playing in just a few minutes about how the ruling elite is robbing ordinary Americans of their private property and then using that property essentially as a bribe to the Chinese to keep that country from dumping dollars and causing the very crisis that Rickards is warning us about in his latest book, The Death of Money. The interview that you are about to hear as soon as we come back from our first commercial break is with Greg Hunter. He's the host of an excellent website at usawatchdog.com. His guest is real estate investor Fabian Calvo, who provides details of how our government is raping and pillaging average Americans for the benefit of those who now own our government. After you listen to this very provocative show today, I would like you to think about a question I have for you and then answer it. Send your answers and responses to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Here's the issue. Putin has a 13% flat tax for ordinary and rich Russians. Our federal tax rate is in the 36 to 38% range for wealthy Americans. Plus, we have local taxes, which if you live in New York can range upwards close to 50% all in. Add to that the outright confiscation of land and property, as Mr. Calvo will talk about in a few minutes. So the question to you is this. Which country respects property rights more, Russia or the United States? Just send me your comments to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. In the second hour of today's show, exclusively at jtaylormedia.com, I'm going to be talking to Daniel McGill. 
Adams, and I'll, he will update us on the geopolitical unrest in Ukraine. David Jensen will talk about the latest connections between geopolitics and the gold markets. Michael Oliver will talk about his technical analysis and what that's telling him about the gold and equity markets. And John Kaiser will be with me also to talk about a few couple of new technologies being used to, to discover gold and uranium, and he'll talk about the companies that are using them. With so much to talk about, we are going immediately to our first commercial break, but don't go away because coming up next will be the interview with Fabian Calvo, followed by my interview with James Records. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, we have been talking a lot lately about currency wars and a threat that the petrodollar will be on the verge of being replaced by a petro-gold-based global currency system as the fraudulent U.S. dollar faces increasing pressures. I happened upon an interview this past week that Greg Hunter of USAWatchdog.com did with a person named Fabian Calvo that strongly suggests that Americans are having their property forcefully taken from them, not through civilized court proceedings, but by violent force at the hands of the Interior Department of the United States government. The story begins with a recent forceful removal of cattle from a western farmer, which according to Calvo is being used to clear the land to give it to the Chinese in order to keep the Chinese from starting a currency war by dumping dollars. Well, this is amazing stuff. I have no reason to believe it is not true, but if it is true, the time when an outright ugly American dictatorship begins to rear its ugly head may be much closer than we think. Listen now to the interview of Fabian Calvo, hosted by Greg Hunter from USAWatchdog.com. 
Hi, I'm Greg Hunter. Welcome to USAWatchdog.com. With us back again, our real estate expert, uh, the NoteHouse.us, his company, uh, buys and sells $100 million of uh, real estate and uh, notes and distressed property a year. We're talking about Fabian Calvo. Fabian Calvo, thank you for joining us today on USA Watchdog. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's always a pleasure. Well, you know, in the pre-interview, you were talking about some of the biggest things happening in real estate. And let's just fast forward to this uh, situation going out in Nevada, the Bundy, uh, I think it's the Bundy Ranch, where he's having hundreds of his cattle uh, being, uh, you know, confiscated by the Bureau of Land Management. He's been grazing his cattle on this Nevada land for years and years, decades, I guess. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the BLM is coming and kicking him up. What's going on with this kind of act? Why do they want to attack a farmer and start killing hundreds of head of his cattle. Yeah, you know, this story I, This story has been going on for now a little bit over a week, and literally actually much longer. And they, the, the hair on the back of my neck, Greg, it, it was standing up when I was doing a lot of research and, and speaking to some of my contacts on Wall Street. But So the BLM, depart, it's part of the Department of Interior. Well, you look at the Department of Interior, what have they been doing? Well, they've been, you know, through the BLM, confiscating land and going after land, for example, in the high desert in California, all over the place. And and what I'm hearing is that, you know, they're they're basically categorizing all this land for future collateralization uh, to sell off. I mean, look, in the, in the Weimar hyperinflation, right, after the hyperinflation, what did they back their currency with? They backed it with mortgages. They backed it with land. Uh, this is a, a, a total possibility here in America, but here's what's even more sinister and crazy. Uh, the Department of the Interior, which the BLM is part of the Department of the Interior. Bureau of Land Management. Yes, the Bureau of Land Management. They have been approving, because I know one of the gentlemen who financed one of these deals, provided the capital for it, structured the whole entire deal. They have been providing sweetheart deals for Chinese investors. I have a laundry list here of, of deals that were that have been approved in the last year, whether it's Smithfield, a gigantic uh, hog producer, the number one hog producer in America, all of the farmland that they own in America. Overnight, the Chinese became the number one employer in a ton of cities across the U.S., but it doesn't stop there. Uh, solar companies, solar fields are getting approval for to build them. Chinese investors are. Uh, the battery companies that they've taken over. I mean, the list goes on and on. People can just check this out. And uh, the USDA also gave them approval to import their chickens. Why is this happening? Because it is an end-of-the-road situation where it's just like America was with England uh, when we were exercising leverage over them around World War II because we were the largest creditor nation. Now we're the largest debtor nation. We owe all this money to the Chinese. And in order to not have them dump their our debt, we're basically allowing them through the Department of the Interior, who is stealing rancher land, killing their cattle, uh, they're, they're literally selling out America, and I, I, this is probably one of the biggest stories going on right now. Uh, in, in in the world of real estate, I believe, Greg. So they're going to take and collateralize, sell off America, is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're look, in the process of selling off America. They are literally in the process of doing this. I think this Bundy Ranch situation could be like the Lexington and Concord of the Second American Revolution. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but I mean, look, people are waking up. I think to this insanity, and when this information gets out. I mean, look, these people, in essence, drew first blood here, Greg, and we need a peaceful, uh, you know, show of we're not going to take this. We literally need a Rambo that's going to take these people on, a Rambo of the financial sector to expose their crimes and what's going on. 
What's the implication down the road if we don't wake up and do something? Is China just going to own big swaths of America? Well, again, people need to understand that this isn't like a uh, this isn't like a theory that that's happening. This is an actual fact. They could just all you need to do is Google U.S. Interior Department, you know, China approves or something like that, and you'll see all of these stories come up and and things that they've been approved of, uh, deals that they've been approved of. I think you look back in history and you see when world reserve currencies are shaky, whether it was the French, whether it was the English that had the world reserve currency, you, you see that in order to keep that world reserve currency and keep that Ponzi scheme up that the U.S. basically has uh, as long as possible, they need to be able to collateralize stuff and, and do all these sweetheart deals so that uh, the, the, the country that basically has us over a barrel, in this case China, uh, doesn't dump our debt. And one more point on this too, Greg. Just last month, we had this BBC documentary where Hank Paulson, former Secretary of Treasury, comes out and says, and the OA crash, he was on the phone with the Chinese pleading, that's his word, not mine, pleading for them not to dump U.S. mortgage-backed securities, which in all of this QE, make no mistake, a lot of that MBS mortgage-backed securities that the Fed was buying was a lot of the garbage they sold to China. They're now buying it back, and it's literally worthless garbage pieces of paper. Oh, so that's what this, uh, you know, whatever it be, what now I think it's about 25 billion a month going to the banks, buying their, their toxic mortgage debt. And that, and that's, isn't that right? Isn't that, isn't that the now number? It's $55 billion total, 25 billion a month? Yeah, you know, that's the number, uh, you know, the, like, the, the number they tell the general public. I don't believe any of those numbers. I mean, how do you have, look, last week we had interest rates go down, 30, 30 year rates, 15 year rates went down. How do you have rates going down? And Yellen has said, look, I'm going to keep rates low. We've got to keep them really low. They understand in order for there to be any real estate, any recovery, there needs to be a real estate recovery. How do you keep rates low if they're not buying long-term debt or continuing to buy debt? It makes absolutely no sense. And, and I think they're, they're absolutely lying. Not only are they lying. They're lying about how much they're buying. They're, they're oh buying way more. I what know you... for fact they have been. I mean, I know this for, I know from people that are in closed door meetings with the Fed that when they were saying 85 billion, it was really 125 billion. I've been saying that for at least six months. What is it uh, now? Well, I, you know, now I don't know if it's 125 still, but bottom line is I don't believe anything that they're saying. It's much more because the economy hasn't gotten any better. And so, you know, look, their balance sheet's now over $4.3 trillion, the Fed's. And here's another point people need to understand, because I always say all of these stories are connected, Greg. You have these banker suicides. These, I mean, these banker murders are being killed. It's, it's pretty obvious now. I mean, you know, look, yeah, yeah, make yeah. suicide prevention people will tell you, you don't get so many people jumping off a cliff or jumping off a building. That's not even the way people commit suicide. It's like 10% of the people who commit suicide jump off a building. Anyways, I, I look, look. The people on Wall Street that I speak with tell me that they—they—it's totally not only plausible. Some of them believe these people are being murdered to prevent an economic Edward Snowden from exposing the financial fraud and crimes that are taking place. The system is is scared to death, and that's why I'm saying we need a, a financial Rambo to come out and literally expose what they're doing. And you're talking—you know—you and I often talk off off off, off interview, and you ask me, well, what's the black swan that could, you know? derail their pump and dump schemes and everything else you got going on for the real estate market because the real estate market I, I got a lot to say about that too but um and it's the fraud being exposed i mean look if you have an economic edward student come out and and and, and expose the fraud of the derivatives the credit default swaps the manipulation of interest rates it's game over i mean the, you need trust in the financial market for it to operate and if trust 
blows up. It's game over. And, Greg, you see the cracks already taking place. The market plunged 2% yesterday. NASDAQ did at least. Last Friday, market was down. In my opinion, I think people are really getting shaky as far as the trust in this financial market. Well, let's just go ahead and fast forward to uh, what's going on in the real estate market. And Janet Yellen, I mean, uh, you know, she looked like she was going to come out and be a little more, a little more hawkish at the beginning of the year. And as of just recently, she comes out and says, uh, okay, we're going to keep, you know, the Fed minutes come out and we're going to keep rates low. Doesn't the dollar blow up at some point? Also, Blackstone, one of the people you do business with, is saying, you know, prices have risen so much we can no longer buy a house, renovate a house, and rent it out for a uh, a profit. He says, you know, that, especially in California, he says, that market is pretty much done. We're done with, and some of these guys are now in the process of starting to sell some of this real estate, according to the stuff I read. Is that what you're saying? Well, bingo. You just hit the nail on the head. What? what so what's happened you know, they're, they're not stopping to buy. Their plan is that they're going to start selling off. Like, for example, Blackstone's the biggest buyer. Before, second biggest buyer is a, is a company called Carrington. They own over 30,000 rental units uh, in America. They also own a very large mortgage uh, servicing company, which, oh, by the way, they just started to say, we want to start to do subprime loans. So this is exactly what I've talked about now in, in, in every interview we've done. It's the pump and dump of the U.S. housing market. After the 2014 election, people go back and see the interviews we've done in the past. You know, I'm not to pat my own back, but I've been right on with what's happened with the real estate market. So what are we seeing now? Wells Fargo, Skyline, Carrington, all of them in FHA, all of them doing loans now between 550 and 600 credit scores. FHA is just doing crazy, uh, no money down loans, but all of them are saying, we want to start doing subprime. Wells Fargo is the leader uh, in starting back into subprime. After 2014, you're going to see subprime loans roar back with style. That's what all these guys that have gobbled up all this real estate, that's when you're going to see this last real big push in the real estate markets. So in the next couple of years, I believe, unless there's a black swan that takes place, you're going to see real estate markets go absolutely buck wild. Uh, go, I mean, go up in price. I mean, you'll see, go up in price. You'll absolutely. See prices yeah. go up. I, five to ten percent, or maybe more, in some markets. I mean, in places like California, like you mentioned, uh, New York, are being fueled by foreign investors who are swooping in as well. You see that. You see, inv- real investors that know what's going on are scared to death, Greg, of the imploding U.S. dollar uh, and and just the the current financial situation. So, and they're looking you know, for any tangible asset, even if it's real estate, even if it goes down in value and interest rates go up. There, well, at least I'll have some protection. Is that what their is that their idea? Bingo! You you got it. That's absolutely right. That is their idea. You look, not everybody's a gold investor, or a silver investor. Some people will say, well, hey. You know, uh, real estate's a, a commodity. Real estate's a, hard, a tangible hard asset. I could rent it out. I could, you know, people will always need a place to live. I mean, uh, so, so yeah, that's what's going on with these foreign investors buying into the market. But so, I really would say that they're not so much the ones that are uh, the, the ones that are going to be involved in the longer term blow up of the market. And by blow up, I mean just prices going crazy until we have another full blown collapse. But I think that collapse of the next housing market will be coupled with the dollar collapse, the stock market collapse, the bond collapse. Everything's going to blow at once. Well, do you think this Russia deal, because you've got to be watching this Russia deal, and they just did another deal just this, you know, recently saying that they're going to uh, have a yuan, a bond. 
and which everybody's, uh-oh, you know, they're going to, it's a more, another move away. They've cut deals with India. They've got gas deals with the U.K. You know, they've got, they've said, hey, we're going to sell our oil and natural gas in rubles. It seems like this move went from a snail's pace under the radar to, boom, with this Ukraine thing, it got kicked into a couple of higher gears. And now Kerry is saying, the Secretary of State, we're going to have more sanctions, which I think is going to do nothing but kick it, kick the move away from the dollar into a higher gear. Could that be one of these black swans that kiboshes the real estate market? Well, well, listen, 2016, like you're you're saying that you could probably be after 2014. It could in, in the next you know several months. Could it kibosh the real estate? Could Israel drop in a daisy cutter on Iran's head? Could that you know or whatever you know you, some attack? Or could Iran attacking Israel or whatever? You know, some blow up in the Middle East. Could that start a a, a cascading effect of the dollar and the real estate market? Well, I think all of those are. Uh, you know, I don't think Israel necessarily will strike without U.S. approval. But I think uh, I think the Russia situation is very interesting because you know a lot of people that say, well, Russia is not going to dump you know U.S. debt, or although they already have. You know, people say in, in December they dumped. They were the ninth largest holder of U.S. debt. Point is, is that a lot of people will believe, Greg. That, oh, well, Russia's a natural gas company, really, if you look at it. Their economy is a $3 trillion economy. We're a $17 trillion economy. They can't hurt us. They're living in the normalcy bias, okay? Just in 2008, it was already, it came out, BBC exposed this. The Russians, with the Chinese, and people can look this up and check it out, they teamed up for a bear raid on Wall Street, on the dollar, and on a lot of financial institutions that led to the 2008 crash. It was a run by the Chinese into... And the, and the Russians, now the Chinese kind of backed out of this. They didn't go full force with it, but the Russians did. And let me tell you, it's really known that the Russians and the Chinese with cyber attacks, all you know, they, they can take down the financial market, I, I believe. In fact, a lot of these blackouts we've seen around the world, a lot of people believe they were, they were done by the Russians and the Chinese, particularly the one that happened uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s in New York City. Point is, is that I, absolutely I think that you're going to see a super alliance form, you're already seeing it form, between the Russians and the Chinese. They've been allies 100 years, uh, but they had a little falling down in the early 60s. Uh, but now I think you're seeing that they recognize the Ponzi scheme of the U.S. dollar is going to blow up. And if they don't begin to uh, get away from the dollar and set up their own bilateral trade agreements, set up their own kind of deals with all these countries, they're going to have revolution on their hand when, you know, the dollar blows up and imported by hundreds and hundreds of percent around the world. So they better do something right now. And I think Putin, you know, like him or hate him, is smart enough to recognize this and is smart enough, I, I think, you know, smart enough to challenge uh, uh, U.S. dollar supremacy. But if something happens with some uh-oh moment, some black swan, this could derail the plans of these guys because we've had the, the pump and now we're going to get ready for the dump, for the big investors are getting ready. They're already thinking about sell, sell, sell. Not buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. That's right. As you see prices continue to go up, and you see, you know, this is what people need to look out for. Well, you sent me a link saying that they're going to start accepting 550 FICO scores. I'm thinking, uh. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, What's the top FICO score, 850? I think 850, you know, I think some, some could be higher than that. But uh, the point is, is that, you know, most people have a credit score of 700 or so, or, or you know, if they do, uh, that's that's always been like, hey, you got to put 20% down. It's always been conventional. Here's the thing. Think about it. After the housing crash in 08, just six years ago, Greg, people were like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. If you give money to people with no credit 
Uh, you know, they, they had a bankruptcy, all kind, you know, they, they don't pay their bills on time, and you give them a loan, chances are, if they have no skin in the game, they're going to walk away when prices collapse, and, and the bank's saying, hey, your payment just doubled, keep paying me. Of course they're going to walk away. And, and, but they're doing it all over again just six years later, which to me shows you, uh, that we don't have sensible people running the economy, or not even running the economy, but just, you know, creating policy. It is our, 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 our government, in essence, has been hijacked, really, by, by criminal bankers and criminal politicians that are creating this environment. I believe these guys have to know this is all going to blow up. That there is, this is no way of running a free market economy. Fabian Calvo, uh, thenotehouse.us, thanks for coming on and enlightening us and giving us the real uh, street-level view of what's going on in the real estate market. I know you're sitting across the, for the, the table from people who are buying two or 300 houses at a pop or, or doing big deals. Thank you for coming on and uh, letting us know what's going on. Thanks a lot, Greg. It's always a pleasure. Well, that is simply amazing. These are amazing allegations. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because coming up next will be James Rickards, who has been talking about currency wars and the end of money. I want to ask James what he thinks about these allegations and much more. So don't go away. I'll be right back with James Rickards. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again James Rickards. He's the best-selling author of a book called Currency Wars, and now, during the very first week of his new book called The Death of Money, uh, he's hit the New York Times bestseller list once again. 
James Rickards probably doesn't need any introduction to this group, uh, to the listeners on this show, but, I, but because I think his background is so very impressive and so relevant to what we want to talk about today, let me just give you a brief description of his background. As I mentioned, James is the author of the best-selling Currency Wars and now the second uh, bestseller, Death of Money, and he is also a portfolio manager at West Shore Group and a partner in Tangent Capital Partners based in New York. He is also an investment advisor and has held senior positions at Citicorp, Long term capital management and Caxton Associates. In 1998, he was the uh, principal negotiator of the rescue of the long-term capital management by the Federal Reserve. His clients include institutional investors uh, and government uh, directorates, and uh, he has been uh, interviewed in the mainstream press, uh, all of the uh, media that uh, we all know and and see every day. James is also an advisor on capital markets to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and he holds several undergraduate and graduate degrees both in law and economics. Welcome, James. It's really good to have you back with me once again. Nice to be with you, Jay. Before we get into the discussion of your most recent book, uh, and I think it is so apropos for what I see happening, you know, what is taking place now in the global economy, geopolitically and so forth? We uh, talk frequently to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, We talk about to a lot of people who are really following the gold markets and the international markets and so forth. So it seems to me what your your latest book, as well as the first one, was very is very apropos and and very much in sync with the times. And what's happening, not what's necessarily reported in the mainstream media, but is what we believe on this show is really going on. Uh, for the sake of those that may not have been uh, familiar with Currency Wars, can you give our listeners just a brief overview of the thesis of that book? Uh, sure, Jay, I'd be glad to. You know, It's very uh, great to have a chance to talk about um, my new book, The Death of Money, but my first book, uh, Currency Wars, which came out in 2011. Interestingly, it's still selling well, actually, if you go to some of the yeah, Amazon has overall rankings, but they have some subcategories, and the one I'm in is uh, uh, money, and uh, currency wars are sort of neck and neck with the depth of money, so the two books are, uh-huh. are both doing well, so it's continued to sell well. Uh, yeah, but currency wars came out in 2011, and I talked about the competition between countries when there's insufficient growth, when you're in a global depression, which we are, the world's in a global depression, has been since 2007. Uh, and you can't create enough growth. You try to steal it from your trading partners. And the mm-hmm. way you do it is by cheapening your currency. And then in theory, you know, that promotes exports. So, for example, we make uh, we have Boeing that makes aircraft in uh, the United States. Europe has a big aircraft company called uh, Airbus. Uh, we compete with them for orders around the world. Well, in theory, if you cheapen the dollar, that makes uh, a foreign buyer, makes the, the uh, Boeing plane a little bit less expensive. Maybe we make a few more sales create a few more jobs. It sounds good. The problem is it never works out that way in practice because what happens is the other guy then cheapens his currency and nobody's further ahead. All you get is inflation because, mm-hmm. you know, when you cheapen the currency, people forget that. The U.S. has a lot of exports, but we're a net importer. We buy more than we sell. And so yeah. with a cheaper currency, our imports cost more. So textiles, manufactured goods, electronics, etc. So this actually is, the, by the way, the, the hidden agenda of the Federal Reserve. They want inflation. And a cheap currency is one way to get it because it makes the stuff we buy from overseas more expensive. So it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads to inflation. It destabilizes the system. Um, and currency wars has a lot of economic history. There are really five chapters of the history of the international monetary system from um, uh, 1870 to uh, 2011. And I put that in there because I knew that I wanted to talk about gold at some point. But if you jump right into gold, you know, people have a negative reaction. Mm-hmm. They, they call you a wingnut or, you know, a, 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 
a conspiracy theorist or whatever. Yes, I know. Uh, well. But if, if you could just bring the reader along with history and show how gold has been used, not just for 5,000 years of history, but in the last 100 years as an important part of the monetary system and continues to have a big role, then you could talk about it and the reader would feel more comfortable with the subject. And I think that worked really well. So so that was Currency Wars. Oh, by the way, in Chapter uh, uh, chapter 8 of Currency Wars, uh, again, this book came out three years ago, there's mm-hmm. a long section on, guess what, Russia, Ukraine, uh-huh. natural gas, gas prom, all the things we're reading about today. So that book told you what was going to happen three years forward. The new book, The Death of Money, read it now, and you'll you'll be able to see what's going to happen three years from now. Well, it is uh, it is amazing. You've been amazingly accurate on that, and, and it always made sense to me when I picked up a copy of The Currency Wars to begin with. Uh, James, you've always made sense to me. Um, I, I think we should hear and see more of you in the mainstream press, but obviously there are reasons uh, that your story is not really something that too many people want to think about, probably. But let's talk a little bit about the death of money. Uh, in the introduction to your book, you started out by writing the following. The death of money is about the demise of the dollar. By extension, it is also about the potential collapse of the international monetary system because if confidence in the dollar is lost, no other currency stands ready to take its place as the world's reserve currency. The dollar is the linchpin. If it fails, the entire system fails with it since the dollar and the system are one and the same. As fearsome a prospect as this dual collapse may be, it looks increasingly inevitable. So my question to you, James, is why is this inevitable and why cannot some stabilization of the existing system be put in place? Well, it's a good question, Jay. And, you know, the, the book is called The Death of Money, but the subtitle is The Coming Collapse of the International Monetary System, which is what you referred to in the, in the excerpt that you read. Mm-hmm. And the first, you know, it sounds provocative, but it's not really meant to be. The first point I make is that the international monetary system actually has collapsed three times in the past hundred years. Uh-huh. It collapsed in 1914, again in 1939, and again in 1971. So these things do happen every 30 or 40 years. I'm not saying, uh, and was, by the way, it was 40 years, of approximately a little more since the last collapse. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying it, it happens like clockwork tomorrow because it's been 40 years. What I'm saying is that seems to be the, the, the useful life of the international monetary system. Now, when it collapses... It doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean that we all go live in caves and eat canned goods. What it means is that the major, major trading and financial powers get together, sit around a table, and they rewrite what they call the rules of the game. And the rules of the game is not my phrase. It's a phrase that's been around for a 100 years to describe the workings of the rules of the international monetary system. So what I do for the reader is, first of all, explain why the collapse is coming, what dynamic instability is already there, what critical state is approaching, that will cause it to collapse. But then take the story forward and say, what will the new rules of the game be? What will the new international monetary system look like on the other side of this collapse? And then kind of go back to square one and say, what can investors do today to prepare for the chaos and the new system so that they will preserve wealth, their portfolio will be robust to these kinds of shocks? So that's really the the, the big theme of the book, is to help investors understand today what they need to do to get ready for something that's coming in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, indeed. Uh, that's the most important thing, and I think why uh, people are reading your books, James, is because they want to try to uh, protect themselves against, uh, you know, whether people can really put their finger on it or not. I think people sort of realize in their gut that things are not as they should be. As you mentioned, we have been in a, a depression. That's not a word that's used by the mainstream, but you use it very courageously, That uh, telling it like it is. We, we have trouble. I think people understand that. I mean, we try to escape with our 
with our entertainment, uh, you know, with our baseball games, our football games, our television, and so forth that keeps us distracted. But there's uh, uneasiness, an uneasiness, I think, among the populace, and they know things aren't right. So I think that's why people are reaching out. And so we want to ask you before we finish today, you know, what some of your suggestions are. But I'd like to, uh, in your book, uh, your most recent book here, you talked a little bit, you made a comparison with where we are now and what happened uh, and the environment back in the late 1970s. I'm old enough to have remembered very well, very vividly, in fact. I still remember August 15, 1971, when Nixon detached us from gold and then the inflation that followed. But could you give our our listeners a little bit of an understanding of the parallels between the late 70s and what we're going through now? Sure. Uh, You know, at that time, at least up until August 15, 1971, the the international monetary system operated under a, a, a deal framework that was created at the Bretton Woods Conference in uh, 1944. So, um, and under that system, if you traded with the United States and you got dollars, you could take your dollars, you could do a lot of things with them, you could buy securities or buy land, but one of the things you could do is cash them in for gold. Now, this was only true of foreign countries. It was not true for American citizens. Mm -hmm. In 1971, it was illegal for American citizens to own gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that had been true since 1933 when uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt put that in by executive order. He confiscated all the gold in America and made it illegal for Americans to own gold. And that was the law from 1933 to 1971. But it was not true for trading partners. Countries could get gold under the Bretton Woods system. Now, in 1950, the United States had 20,000 tons of gold. By 1970, we were down to 9,000 tons of gold. Well, where did the 11,000 tons go? It went to our trading partners, you know, in round numbers, 3,000 mm-hmm. tons to Germany, 2,000 to France, 2,000 to Italy, 500 to the Netherlands, etc. But what was happening in the late 60s is there was a run on the bank. Countries could see that the dollar was losing its value because we were printing money to pay for the Great Society and printing money to pay for the war in Vietnam. Inflation was taking off. So there was a run on the bank, and countries like Spain and Switzerland and France and others were cashing their dollars in as fast as they could. So the gold was coming out of Fort Knox. It was just like a run on the bank. And Nixon mm-hmm. looked at that and said, well, uh, we, we kind of do one of two things. We can have a stronger dollar to slow down the run. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want to do that because he was running for re-election in 1972. And he wanted the Fed to keep printing to kind of prop the economy up to help his re-election. So he said, I'll just close the window. Boom. And he did. And what he said to our trading partners is that from now on, when you, when you earn dollars, you can buy all the stocks and bonds you want, but no more gold. Uh, and that was the end of it. Well, what followed was disastrous. We had three recessions back to back to back, 1973, 1979, uh, uh, sorry, 1980, 1981. We had three recessions in a row, very severe ones, particularly the one in 73, 74 where the stock market crashed. Uh, and, of course, in 1980, interest rates went to 20%. Unemployment skyrocketed. The price of oil quadrupled. From 1977 to 1981, the United States had 50% inflation, 5-0. The purchasing wow. power of the dollar was cut in half. You know, a lot of people like to go back to 1913 and look at the decline of the purchasing power of the dollar from the creation of the Fed. That's important. But here you had a five-year window, a very short window, mm-hmm. where the dollar was cut in half. So if you had a pension, insurance policy, an annuity, uh, any savings, any kind of fixed income, um, you're, you, you had half your wealth stolen from you by government-sponsored inflation. Mm-hmm. And the dollar almost collapsed. Now, it, what saved it? Why didn't it collapse all the way? Well, it was saved by Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan. Paul Volcker had a policy of super high interest rates. He said, look, we're going to make the dollar 
an attractive place to invest. We're going to compensate you uh, for your risk. If mm-hmm. you come and invest in dollars, you can get these very high interest rates. And Ronald Reagan cut taxes and cut regulation, which is the right way to get an economy growing. And the, the combination, Volcker stabilized the dollar, Reagan got the economy going. By 1986, inflation was all the way back down to 1.9% after it had been as high as 13% in 1980. So, uh, so that was a round trip from 1967 to 1987 uh, over that time frame. But, uh, but it saved the dollar, and then for 30 years we had the King Dollar period uh, in Republican and Democratic administrations through uh, Reagan, uh, George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush Jr., all maintained, um, George W. Bush, all maintained this policy. It was only in 2010 that President Obama uh, basically tore up that deal and decided, uh, you know, along with others, Secretary Geithner, Secretary of the Treasury Geithner, and uh, Ben Bernanke at the Fed, now Janet Yellen, uh, tore up the deal and tried to cheapen the dollar. So we're kind of back to the future. We're, we're back to the 1970s. And it almost collapsed then. Uh, and uh, But now, of course, the system is much bigger, much more dangerous, much more unstable because of big banks and derivatives and a lot of other things. And so now in the classes, it's going to be even bigger and worse than it was in the 1970s. It'll be bigger than the Fed. The Fed will not be able to put out the fire, and the only clean balance sheet left is the IMF. So what I tell investors is get ready for extreme inflation and get ready for world money, which are these special drawing rights issued by the IMF, because that's what's coming. Uh, so a, a, different, a, current, a new currency regime, if you will, is what you see happening here. Correct. A new international monetary system. And, and a very specific reason for, for when I say these things, yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not just making them up. Or sure. Just to no, I know that. Headlines. I'll give you the analysis, which is, so what happened in the last crisis in 2008? You know, because all the dominoes are falling. You know, Morgan Stanley was days away from failing. Goldman Sachs would have been right behind it. Citibank and Bank of America would have been right, right behind it. All the financial institutions would have collapsed. Why did that not happen? Well, the Fed truncated it. The Fed said, in effect, no more. We're going to do whatever it takes. Since then, they've printed four, almost $4 trillion of new money. Incredible. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have tens of trillions of dollars of swap lines with the European Central Bank. What that means is, you know, the, the European Central Banks actually had dollar liabilities from U.S. money market funds mm-hmm. that invested. Well, the, the, the European Central Bank can print euros, but it can't print dollars, so where was it going to get the dollars to prop up its banks? Well, what they did, they printed up a bunch of euros, the Fed printed up a bunch of dollars, and then they traded. They swapped the euros for the dollars. So the, the Federal Reserve still has the euros, believe it or not. Mm. The European Central Bank got the dollars, bailed out their banks. So, so that's what happened. But here's the problem. The Fed today is leveraged 80 to 1. They have $80 of debt or liabilities for every dollar of capital. And if you took their assets and marked them to market at today's prices, it would wipe out their capital. So the Fed is insolvent. The Fed's broke. Uh, now, they don't actually mark to market. They carry their bonds at historic cost. Right. If you put them at today's prices, they would be broke. So we have an insolvent central bank leveraged 80 to 1. It looks like a broke hedge fund uh, from the outside. Now, what's going to happen the next time there's a financial panic, the next time there's a liquidity crisis? The Fed is not going to be able to pull off this hat trick again because they're tapped out. They've already done that. They've got no more room on their balance sheet, no more capacity. I mean, what are they going to do, print $8 trillion, $12 trillion? I mean, they're at the limit of what they can do. 
Why? Well, let me let me just stop you yeah, there, James, sure. and, and ask you why there's a limit. Because um, you know, if why can't they continue to make believe that their assets on the you know that the assets are worth more than they are as they're doing now? Why can't this go on indefinitely? And what will cause it to break down? I know you mentioned that there are. I, I think I saw in an interview you did that there are members of uh, of the Federal Reserve or people that are associated with the Fed that understand exactly what you're saying that the Fed's balance sheet is is broke already. But why can't this elude continue on forever well the key word uh, Jay is illusion in other words legally it can't legally the Fed could print 8 or 12 trillion and, and that, that is the law today but because it is an illusion what happens it's like breaking a hypnotic spell what happens when you see it for what it is and by the way this is going to be a political issue in the 2016 campaign Senator Rand Paul has already you know, in a speech on the floor of the Senate in January discussed me and my books and this will be a campaign issue in the solvency of the Fed. I mean, if you think the bank bailout was unpopular in 2008, where do we have to bail out the Fed? Um, you know, but of course, the Fed is privately owned by banks, so does that mean the banks are going to have to stump up more capital to recapitalize the Fed? Well, they're already tapped out themselves. I don't know sure. they're going to get that money uh, unless they take it from depositors. Uh, but will the Treasury buy stock in the Fed? Uh, why not? How would the Treasury pay for it? They would issue debt. Who would buy the debt? The Fed. I mean, this is two drunks leaning on each other, so neither one of them fall down. Mm-hmm. But they're both going to fall down together. And the limit, is, it's not a legal limit, but there's a confidence limit. At some point, uh, this, this is going to become more, more apparent. The general public is going to understand it. They're going to say, they're going to do what Warren Buffett is doing, which is getting out of dollars, getting into hard assets. You know, Buffett has this image as a kind of a vuncular, friendly stock investor sitting out in that modest home in, in Omaha. But look at what he actually did a couple of years ago. He bought the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Mm-hmm. Now, ask yourself, what's a railroad? It's all hard assets. It's yeah. land, rail, rolling stock, switches, signals, yards, right. etc. How does the railroad make money? It moves hard assets, you know, corn, wheat, coal, steel, etc. Mm-hmm. So, and he bought the whole thing. He didn't just buy a stock position. He bought the whole thing, took it private, took it off the stock exchange. So here's Warren Buffett dumping paper money, getting into hard assets. The dollar could go to zero, and it would have no impact on the value of his investment because he owns the railroad. He owns a hard asset. That, that asset is going to be valuable no matter what happens to the dollar. And we saw this in Weimar, Germany in 1923 when the currency went to zero. Well, that wiped out the middle class. That wiped out the savers and people with pensions. But it didn't wipe out the industrialists because if you own a factory, it's a factory. It still has value. And then they actually became wealthier and backed Hitler as their puppet, and we all know how that ended. So mm-hmm. when it comes to billionaires, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Watch Warren what they Buffett, do. Dumping paper money, getting in hard assets. And no doubt that's part of your advice, and to our listeners on a smaller scale, of course, uh, is to do the same thing. That's absolutely right. And my, you know, my hedge fund friends in Greenwich, you know, some of them are multi-billionaires, and they can go out and buy a Picasso and pay $100 million. Uh, that's a little rich for most of, it, most of us, but there are things you can do. You can buy land. Uh, there are some fine art funds you can invest in that where you know maybe you don't own a Picasso, but you're you're in a pool with other investors and they're buying and selling high quality fine art, so you get to participate there. And of course, gold. You know, uh, if you can't go out and buy a whole railroad like Warren Buffett, uh, you can buy some gold. I recommend ten percent, ten to twenty percent, twenty percent for the aggressive, aggressive investor, ten percent for the conservative investor. You shouldn't go all in. Um, I have clients who are 50% in gold. I tell them, you didn't get that from me. I don't recommend 50%. But I do recommend, let's say, 10%. So if you have $10 million, you should have a $1 million in physical gold. 
If you have a million dollars, you should have a hundred thousand in physical gold. And if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you should have ten thousand in physical gold. I actually met a, a taxi driver recently, and she said, "I only have ten thousand dollars." I said, "Well, fine, buy one gold coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be thirteen percent." But but put it, you know, put it get physical bullion. Don't buy paper gold. Put it in a secure place. Don't put it in the bank because the day you want your gold is the day the banks are going to be closed uh, mm-hmm. by executive order. Uh, but there are there are vaults and secure logistics firms around that are not not owned by banks that are reliable and they're insured. You can count on that. Um, and then just sit tight. And if if uh, if good things happen, uh, you won't get hurt much. And uh, if at all, and you'll make money on everything else. But if bad things happen, if the stock market and the and the housing market collapse, which I expect they will because they're bubbles and they fall thirty percent in a short period of time, your gold will skyrocket. And there's your protection on the rest of your portfolio. James, let me ask you, uh, 10 to 20%, in fact, it reminds me of a question from a listener who wanted me to ask you why, if you're so sure this thing is going to fall apart, we're going to have a new currency uh, regime that might even have some gold uh, involved with it, why would you limit yourself to 10 or 20%? I think you may have answered part of that in that uh, are, you may be fearful that it would be confiscated again, possibly. Well, not, no, not really fearful of that. I mean, look, that is what happened in 1933, but uh, that was a time when people trusted the government. There was a, there was an enormous uh, fear because of the Great Depression. People believed in Roosevelt. And so when he ordered that, people went along with it because they kind of trusted the government. Today, I think it's different. I think people rightly don't trust the government. Uh, I think there'd be a lot of pushback. You know, I'm a lawyer. I don't counsel uh, uh, any, uh, you know, illegal activities, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, if, he, if the government tried to confiscate gold, I think there'd be a lot of pushback, and I think the government knows that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there might be other things going on, by the way, such as taxation. They might say, well, you can keep your gold, but we're going to have a 90% windfall profits tax on, right. on the money you made. So right. that's a separate issue. But uh, coming back to the first question, well, if I'm so sure of myself, why not 100% gold? Two things. Number one, it's never good to be so sure of yourself. I mean, I do see <laughs> these things coming. Yeah. I've done a lot of analysis. It's all in the book. I wouldn't write the book or talk about it if I didn't think I was correct, but you have to allow for the fact that maybe things will play out differently. Number sure. One. Number two, there are other assets that do the same job, mm-hmm. and diversification is always a good thing. So fine art, I like to say fine art acts the way gold would act if there weren't central bank manipulation. In other words, central banks do manipulate the price of gold, and when you own gold, you should understand that it's volatile and you're fighting every central bank in the world. You'll win in the long run, but there'll be a lot of volatility and some downdrafts in the short run. Janet Yellen does not wake up in the morning and say, gee, you really got to squash the art market today. You know, central banks don't care about art, and so that's an asset that gets to go its own way and gets to appreciate the way gold would appreciate without the central bank intervention. So I like that land is another uh, category. Um, so, um, so there are things you can do, and also alternative investments. Uh, such as hedge funds, you know, a lot of times there are large minimums, so they're not mm-hmm. right for everybody. By the way, I, I run a mutual fund that is open to all investors called West Shore Funds. Okay. And, and in that fund, we buy these things that, that I'm talking about. So a, a retail investor can buy the West Shore Fund in small amounts, but then we take the investor money and we invest part of it in gold, fine art, you know, land, and the kinds of things, and hedge funds and the kinds of things we're talking about. So we allow small investors to participate mm-hmm. in some of these asset categories, even if they can't meet the minimum to invest in them directly. So there are things you can do. Right. James, in that, uh, in that mutual fund of yours, then you invest directly in those assets, in those commodities, if you will. Correct. Do you also invest in, uh, in the shares of, of companies with hard assets? 
We do. We own, uh, for example, Thai uh, tap water. That's a, a, the, the water company, water utility of Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of political turmoil in Thailand. We know about that, but they have to drink water, uh, and that's an emerging growing market, so we like that. Uh, we have, uh, it's about 40% U.S. stocks and bonds, uh, 40% emerging market stocks and bonds, 20% alternatives. I'm I, with two partners. Uh, we have three portfolio managers. I'm one of them, and I manage the... Uh, uh, the, uh, the the alternatives uh, sleeve, as we call it. So that's the part with uh, the gold and the art and the hedge funds. Mm-hmm. But my partners also, they're investing in stocks and bonds, but they're looking for the kind of things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So uh, companies that own land, companies that own hard assets and uh, resources. Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the investment process. Investors, of course, should read the perspectives. It's all available online. But uh, but there are that is one fund out there that lets Small investors get exposure to these kinds of assets. Very good, very good. And, and how long has the fund been open, and how has it performed so far? It's a brand new fund. It only okay. opened in December, so we have a very short track record. Okay. In fact, it's actually hard to buy from some of the big platforms because they won't put you on their platform unless you've been around for a couple of years. But uh, Knockwood, we're we're off to a good start. Good. Well, that, that's something I'll uh, certainly want to take another look at, take a look at it. I haven't really uh, explored it yet. I, I thank you for sharing that with us. We only have a few more minutes left, uh, James, but I want to ask you a little bit about some of the current events that are taking place. I've had some talk with some of my friends uh, that they think that we could be moving from what has been described as a petrodollar post 1971 to a petro gold system, and they point to the fact that the Chinese have been amassing huge amounts of of gold, the Russians too to an extent, and then uh, of course as this Ukrainian situation seems to be getting worse all the time, seems to be pushing Russia and China closer together. There was an, a, an agreement just announced I think between Russia and China where uh, China will purchase the natural gas from Russia. Meantime, Russia's made agreements with Iran, also with India I understand, to supply them with oil. And then just yesterday it was widely reported on Bloomberg and major other, uh, other major news outlets that the BRIC countries are planning to set up their own banking system to bypass uh, the World Bank and the IMF. Do you, do you take that seriously? Well, here's the thing, Jerry. Um, there's a short answer and a long answer. I could talk for hours about everything you just asked. But oh, I know you could. Is, the short answer is I recommend that the readers uh, uh, get my book, The Death of Money, but just to be specific, sure. chapter, chapter 2 is all about financial warfare and talks about Iran. Chapter 6 is about the BRICS and emerging markets and talks specifically about the petrodollar and Russia. Uh, chapter 9 is all about gold and talks about Chinese gold acquisition. So as you go through the book, I think readers will find there are literally hundreds of pages of very up-to-date discussion of all the issues you raised. And by the way, uh, it has 300 endnotes. Now, we put the footnotes at the end. They're called endnotes mm-hmm. so as not to clutter up the pages. But anything you read in that book, if you're interested or intrigued or you disagree or agree, you can go to the endnotes. You can find additional resources. You can dig down yourself. Uh, you know, kind of challenge the assumptions. So I don't like to just put things out there and not back it up. So the book's heavily researched. Uh, all the endnotes are there. But everything you mentioned, financial warfare, Russia, Crimea, petrodollar, China, gold, it's all in the book. Yeah, well, I want to thank you very much for sharing all of this. This is just a little taste of, of what you can get uh, in The Death of Money. It's a must-read book, and I would say uh, the easiest way to get it, uh, those of you who listen to this show, go to jtaylormedia.com, and there's a, a banner, the Death of Money banner. Just click on that, and it will take you right to, to the website where you can buy this excellent book. I want to thank you very much, James. Anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion today? Yeah, the only thing I would say, Jay, is everything I've discussed and analyzed and talked about, you know, I have a certain time frame. As I watch developments 
the tempo seems to be picking up. Things are there's certain things happening that I expect, but they're happening a little faster than yeah. I expected. So I think that this. I just have this sense that this clock is ticking even faster. Yeah, that, that's uh, sort of my read of it too, James. I want to thank you very much for taking your valuable time, sharing it with our listeners. I wish you all the best, and thank you very much, thank and, you, and, and take care. Well, that's just about all the time we have for the first hour of today's show, but there is more to come at jtaylormedia.com. Go there and click on the podcast button to hear the second hour of today's show. There I will be talking to Daniel McAdams about the latest geopolitical unrest in the Ukraine and elsewhere. David Jensen will be visiting me to talk about the latest connections between geopolitics and the gold markets. And Michael Oliver will be with me also uh, to talk about the technical analysis uh, that he uh, provides for his clients uh, concerning where the gold and equity markets are heading. And finally, uh, John Kaiser will be with me also to talk about some very intriguing ideas about a couple of new technologies in the mining sector, one uh, used to help junior resource companies find gold in Nevada and the other to help companies find uranium in Canada's rich Athabasca region. Some very interesting ideas from John Kaiser and the other guests, so I hope that you will join me at jtaylormedia.com. Again, go to, the, uh, go to that site and click on the podcast button. In closing, I do want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening to this show on Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Canamex Resources has commenced a 10,000-meter drill program on its flagship Bruner Gold Project in Nevada. This follows a successful 2013 field season, which included a 58-meter intercept of 5.2 grams per ton gold. NYSE market-listed Gold Resource Corporation just completed a $2 million strategic investment in Canamex. And NYSE-listed Hecla Mining Company also is a strategic investor. Canamex Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under symbol CSQ and on the OTCQX under symbol CNMXF.